0: Welcome back to the Investing in the Go podcast brought to you by FunCaliber. This week, we delve into the U.S. equity market, exploring market trends, investment strategies, and the potential shifts that may shape the future of U.S. equities in 2024. I'm Stacey West, and today I'm joined by Bob Kaner, manager of the Schroeder U.S. MidCap Fund. Bob, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, I want to start with setting the scene a little bit for U.S. equities, which is Many headlines that our listeners will have seen and know about have been strongly dominated by the magnificent seven. Um, Do you think that this is set to continue, maybe touch on a little bit what it is and and how that's influenced what you're seeing?
1: Sure. I mean, the dynamic in the U.S. equity market is that we we really have two markets. We have a a market of seven stocks um, and everything else. Uh, earnings growth this year, as well as price performance, has been dominated by just seven companies. I think we all know who they are. Um, but it, excluding those companies, the really the, the s and I'll say 493, is basically flat on the year. Um, so all of the return that you're seeing is is dominated in a handful of stocks. The market, frankly, is as concentrated as it's ever been uh, both from a weighting's perspective as, as well as an earnings growth contribution perspective. Um, so that's kind of the market we're in. I think that if you look, one one way to kind of gauge this is if you look at the, the difference in return between the S&P 500, which is market cap weighted, and the S&P equal weight index, you will see that the return has never been this wide unless you go back to the late 90s. So it's a very similar dynamic that we saw um, in the late 90s. And I would say generally, it's not necessarily a healthy market where you have very narrow leadership. Um, So do I think it's set to continue? The answer is, you know, we are at historical extremes. So there's no reason that can't continue. But I would also say that... um, it's probably about as far as it seems to go. I mean, we we are, we are so dominated by just a small handful of stocks. Uh, and you're starting to see the market broaden out recently, where participation is expanding, but beyond those, just magnificent seven. And I think that that's a very healthy dynamic, not just for mid-cap companies, but really for any index that is not so market cap dominated.
0: And. The magnificent seven, for those who don't know, are pretty much tech companies um, or heavily influenced by, by AI, which we've seen recently. Um, yes. Do you think that the kind of tech AI bubble is about to burst? or valuations just got too high?
1: I think the, the fundamental momentum behind um, AI and the spending behind that is certainly set to continue. Large language models have have been kind of with us for a long period of time, but they are certainly going to the next level in terms of capability and compute power. Um, So do I think that the bubble is going to burst? I I don't know. Valuations are certainly high. If you look across those Magnificent Seven, those companies are trading at multiples other than Google. uh, Those companies are trading at multiples, approaching 40 times earnings, their EV enterprise value to revenue multiples are high single digits, approaching double digits. Those are huge valuation um, numbers um, relative to any other equity asset class globally. They are expensive. Ultimately, what causes the bubble to burst is when be- better opportunities exist. And when you have, if, if and when you, you have improving fundamentals in other parts of the market, that will. Cause the the flow of funds tied to change, and that's when you'll see markets you know move away from just a small kind of handful of stocks or a handful and a half of stocks. Valuation matters, and valuations are at extreme. But ultimately, you need a change in fundamental backdrop in order to catalyze that change.
0: And what does that mean for for you and for this fund? So. Your, your hunting ground is small and mid-caps, as, as you said, for the U.S. Mid-Cap Fund, which makes sense. Um, so what does all of this mean for the companies that you are looking at? Do you see more opportunities in, the mar- in your area of the market?
1: I think that the valuations are at extremes. Um, they are priced. You are getting paid to take risk in the small and mid-cap market. If you just go to your classic, you know, uh, business school kind of and an um, equity risk premium, there is a large equity risk premium that exists in the small and mid-cap space and a negative equity risk premium that exists in the large cap space. So that tells me that it doesn't take much to be right and to get rewarded. Uh, valuations are extreme, fundamentals are improving. And I think importantly, it is the fundamental improvement that's going to drive that change. And the fundamental improvement in the small and mid-cap space in the U.S. is going to be driven by fiscal stimulus. We've had a large amount of stimulus get approved, um, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, the infrastructure bill. All of that is is incentivizing domestic spend and domestic manufacturing. And the small and mid cap companies are poised to be the main beneficiary of that. So that's where I see kind of the catalyst for the change occurring. And I would tell you through our work, we are seeing that money through those fiscal stimulus programs, just start to get released and just start to flow downstream. And that's where we see, you know, we can make the case for improving fundamentals, which is what matters.
0: So do you think that investors will see more of that money then coming through in 2024, ultimately making kind of now the good entry point to get the access before all that money comes through to the companies that you've just talked about?
1: It's always hard to pinpoint the, you know, the exact time when the tide is going to turn, you know, from our perspective, you know, we build mosaics. We, everybody in this, in this industry works with hopefully less than perfect information. So you try to, to build mosaics and make the case. Um, but the space, I would tell you, small and mid cap stocks feel like a ball being held underwater. Um, you started to see that outperformance last year. In fact, I think what's lost on a lot of people, for a lot of investors, is if, if you looked at the end of February of 2023, and you look back over the trailing 12 months, small and mid-cap stocks were outperforming large cap by 500 basis points. That was into an environment of the Fed raising rates, of downward earnings revisions, and the market pricing in at the time everybody expected an imminent recession. And yet, Small and mid-cap stocks were outperforming because we had a similar dynamic to what we're experiencing today. And I've always argued that it's not the cycle you're in that matters, it's what the starting point is. And the starting point was extreme. Not to go too far into it, but what unraveled that kind of momentum for the asset class, frankly, was what happened in the regional with the regional banks in March. Those are small and mid-cap banks. If you think about kind of regional and community banks. They're very large in the small and mid-cap indices. In the large cap indices, you're dealing with big money center banks. What happened, the banking crisis in March of 2023 was a small and mid-cap problem. Created significant downward earnings provisions in the space. And I think that that is what prompted the trade out of small cap into large cap that we saw in March of this year. Further exacerbated by what we saw in May with NVIDIA and their tremendous earnings report. So that understanding kind of what changed the momentum is important. Um, and I think that we're, the pendulum is is poised to swing back in the favor of the small and mid cap space as you start to see improving relative earnings and that's what's gonna matter.
0: And you and I have talked to a number of times throughout the years. And one thing that you have always said is that the, the mid-caps, you believe, are the the heartbeat of the U.S. economy. So I want to talk about the U.S. economy for a little bit. Um, and I'm going to start with something that's near and dear to my heart, which is student debt. Um, we have student debt repayments starting again um, in the U.S. combined with higher interest rates. Do you think that the U.S. consumer can continue to power the U.S. economy onwards as it has recently?
1: It, it's a great question. And when I think of student debt, you know, we, we have a bifurcated consumer in, in, in the US. Um, if you look at spending behavior and savings rates you know, by income cohort, it's very different. The low end is clearly struggling. Higher interest rates, we're seeing revolving debt increases. We're seeing subprime auto loans start to deteriorate. We're seeing deterioration in credit card debt. Um, but when I think of of student debt, student debt is really it's not the low end consumer. the 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 U.S. Consum- the U.S. Um, you know individual that has that has student debt is of a higher income uh, cohort. Um, they tend to be homeowners. Uh, they tend to have good income. I don't think student debt is going to be the problem for the U.S. consumer. I'm frankly I'm more concerned about what happens to the employment cycle. You know, we've started to see deterioration in some credit metrics that impact the low-end consumer, but we haven't yet seen um, unemployment, you know, turn the wrong direction. Um, When I get concerned with the U.S. consumer, when we see the services industry slow down, um, and that's where many of the low-income consumers, where they get their jobs. So that's the part that concerns me. I think the U.S. consumer is in a very tenuous situation, we talk about, a lot about pent-up savings. I don't spend a lot of time looking at the savings rate data. I think if you go back, you'd see that it is the most revised set of government data there is. Um, and there was a big revision, again, that was made to pent-up savings last month. Um, so from my perspective, I am worried about the consumer. I take some comfort in the fact that a lot of our enthusiasm for the fundamental improvement is being driven by fiscal stimulus that's already in law, where the money is already allocated and is finally starting to flow downstream, I don't think the U.S. consumer um, is what is going to pull us into a recession, unless we see a a quick and sudden deterioration in the employment picture.
0: I was going to just say on the employment side of things, um, is that something that you talk about or see with the companies in your portfolio as a potential concern on on any of them?
1: Yeah, I think one of the, you know, we build our views generally based on the conversations we have with our companies. We speak to over 100 companies a quarter. Um, one of the things that became clear at the beginning of this year, and frankly, one of the complicating factors for the Fed, is that there is um, there is labor hoarding in the US companies that are being bear- are slow to lay off employees because what they experienced through covid when they tried to manage their discretionary expenses quickly they laid people off quick recovery in the market they couldn't hire them back and when they when they did it was very expensive through this cycle we're seeing our companies and companies broadly in the US hold on to labor even though they're experiencing some modest top line deterioration because they don't want to try to let hire those people back six months from now, if things recover, given the experience they had during COVID. And I think, frankly, that's one of the the, the problems or struggles for the Federal Reserve is they've raised been raising rates for 18 months and there's been no real deterioration in employment. And I think that's a function of this labor hoarding um, that I was referencing.
0: Just talking about things that you you know, are speaking to your companies about, and as you mentioned, you speak to hundreds of companies um, a year. So one of the things next year in particular, a lot of people will be looking towards is not only the US election, but there's a number of global elections and how that influences the economy and the stock market. Is this a discussion that you are having with companies um, already or in the future? Or is it something that, you know, isn't really on your radar because you were talking about other things?
1: Yeah. So um, we certainly don't try to to, to pick election outcomes, um, but we are always aware of what potential policy shifts may occur. If you go back to 2016, that was probably the most significant um Impact from a policy perspective. Nobody expected Trump to get elected. Uh, there was massive policy implications ar- around um, around that election. When we think about what's 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 at stake, if you will, as we look into 2024, a lot of what's driving the the um, the interest and enthusiasm and excitement around the asset class is a, is a function of fiscal stimulus plans that were have already been made into law and already gone through the rulemaking process. So I don't view that as a significant risk. The, um, we have a very tight um, Senate and Congress and, and House of Representatives. So unless there was a landfall, you know, not just in the presidential election, but in the Senate and in the House and a massive swing one way I don't really see um, how that would change kind of our our our, our working view of, of the direction of travel here, and based on everything we've seen, it's unlikely and perhaps fortunate that one party won't be dominating <laughs> um, all three branches of government.
0: Slightly shifting, just to look specifically at your your fund, is that you have three insurance companies in your top ten, so just a little bit curious about this. Are you seeing a lot of opportunities in insurance and the financial space or is it something else entirely?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when we, when you see, when we have overweights in, in, and I'll say subsectors because this really isn't about the high level industry of financials, our financials exposure hasn't changed too much over the past year and a half, but we've gone from significantly overweight banks to underweight banks and from underweight insurance to overweight insurance. And that view is driven by um, kind of bottom-up view on individual companies. But when we do that work, we tend to step back and say, well, we have a number of companies that are all fitting in the same space. Do we? Is there a macro view that we need to have a better understanding of or a structural change in the industry um, that we should start thinking about? So one of the things we like about insurance is that they are cyclical businesses, but they are not tied to the macroeconomic cycle. You can target certain um, certain verticals within insurance. They could be non-standard auto. They could be homeowner's insurance. It could be insurance brokerage. Um, so the overweight in insurance is a function of ideas bottom-up driven. It's a function of Um, not being not dependent on the on an economic cycle to drive increasing returns. And the general view is that we've had lots of capital come out of the insurance industry over the last few years. Up until this year, we've had a number of catastrophes, storms, tornadoes, earthquakes. The past year, it's been very benign. And that those loss events are going to is going are going to keep capital on the sidelines. And the established industry players are going to have a multi-year runway to improve returns. Ultimately, capital will come back and change the pricing dynamic. But for the next couple of years, we see a, a ve- very favorable dynamic that's not tied to the broad economic backdrop.
0: And well, speaking of uh looking forward, we are at- at that time of year where we ask everyone to get their crystal ball out. So what, what is your outlook for us small and, and mid cap? Let's focus on, on your area. We'll leave tech and the Magnificent Seven aside for, for this bit, but, um, what are you, you know, what are you looking at Internally, what are maybe your company saying to you? How are you feeling about the U.S. consumer? All the little bits that we've talked about um, throughout this this podcast. How do you feel about that outlook for 2024 and, you know, further afield three, five years?
1: So I think that these I mean, I, when you look through the, the telescope as opposed to the microscope, you know, when cycles change, they la- they're not short term in nature. Um, they're multi year. So, I, th- I see an improving fundamental backdrop in the small and mid cap space for all the reasons we discussed at valuations that I would say are um, unsustainably cheap. I do think that, that you know, what happens in small cap is somewhat a function of, from a fund flows perspective, not from a fundamental earnings growth perspective, is somewhat inextricably linked to what happens with the Magnificent Seven. They are expensive, they're crowded you know, what causes allocators or, or investors to move away, ultimately will come down to better opportunity sets, you know, whether that better opportunity set is small in the small US small mid cap space, or if there's improving opportunities in other developed markets. I think one of the dynamics we've, we've seen this year is that um, you know, global allocators don't feel like there's a lot of opportunities and equities. So they end up buying the ACWI. Um, I think there's a view that somehow this is a diversified benchmark when in fact, almost 20% of the, of the AQUI is in those same seven stocks. So perhaps an improving backdrop in Europe, improving backdrop in China causes money to go out of kind of an acqui type index, which is almost by definition forcing buying in these seven stocks. Perhaps that's what Ironically, it um, improves the outlook or the flow of funds into the small and mid-cap space in the U.S. That I'm not entirely sure of. But what I am sure of is that valuations are cheap. Fundamentals are improving absent a rapidly deteriorating economy, which we don't see. um, And that the cycle that we're in is, is not connected like we've seen in other cycles. Things aren't moving up and down in unison. The way that we went into COVID and different companies and different industries came out of COVID with supply chains opening and closing at different times leads us to an environment where the cycle is is pretty diverse. There's companies, um, there's lots of industries, opportunities within particular industries, irrespective of what's happening around the, the broad economic backdrop because of the way we went in and the way we came out of COVID. So I think it's an exciting time to be, frankly, in active management. I think it's an exciting time for the small and mid-cap space because I see valuations that are extremely depressed and fundamentals that are improving. But it's going to require a continuation of fundamental improvement for investors globally to take notice.
0: Bob, thank you very much. You've certainly made the case for U.S. mid-cap. And as always, it's lovely to catch up. So thanks for making time for us today.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Run out of New York by Bob Kaner. This fund invests in equity securities of small and mid-cap U.S. companies. Bob's goal for the fund is to offer access to a risky asset class, but at a lower level of risk. To learn more about the shorter U.S. mid-cap fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Caliber's research methodology and are the opinion of FunCalibur's research team only.